0: This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. This week, our town hall with Congressman Adam Smith. He is the chair of the Armed Services Committee and our state's longest serving member. So we have a wide ranging discussion about everything from this year's defense budget to the situation in Ukraine and also what Democrats need to be doing and saying to gear up to win in November. That is next. Thank you, everybody, for taking the time on a Saturday here to have this wonderful conversation that we're about to have uh, with Congressman Adam Smith. How are you, sir? It's always good to see you. I'm doing well. Got home last night. So uh, going back on Monday. Okay, it's always a it's always a back and forth, uh, a back and forth affair with those uh, you know, people who work, particularly on the West Coast here. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I don't envy your commute, but I'm grateful that you make it. Um, so, as Kat said, we are here to discuss a number of things, but I do want to start with the NDAA, which passed uh, in December. This authorizes 777 billion dollars for national defense. And, you know, if you'll indulge me, I want to start with a question that I've never put to you before. And it was certainly we will talk extensively about the specifics in this bill. But I'll just ask you, why should the average non-military person care about what's in the NDAA? Well, I think there's, I mean, three things occur to me off the top. I might add to it
1: after that. Number one, it is our, you know, ability as a legislative branch to exercise oversight of the Pentagon. Um, So a whole lot of what we put in there is on policy objectives, you know, I mean, procurement and acquisition, you know, what what can we do to, to speed up that process, make sure we're getting the most for the taxpayer dollars that we're spending. Um, you know, a focus on competition, a focus on innovative technologies. There's all manner of different policies that we advance on that. Uh, and then, you know, there's various weapons systems that we consider. Um, you know, should we be buying more tanks that we don't need? Um, how much do we want to invest in the F-35? Now, that's not entirely controlled by us. The appropriators can step in, um, but we can place limits on it. I mean, one of my first votes um, in, back in 97 was against building 20 more B-2 bombers. Um, that was an authorizing policy decision, so we shaped that. The second thing that I think is really important, um, that I think is underestimated, is to show that the legislative body can actually function. You know, there's been a major shift in the last, you know, 30 years, away from Congress being able to pass anything, and the executive branch, as a result, having increasing power. You know, the great, you know, the Foreign Affairs Committee back in the mid 90s failed to pass an authorizing bill, and they haven't passed a meaningful one since. Uh, as a consequence, Congress doesn't have as big a say. I mean, they pass bills occasionally on issues that that matter, but they don't have that regular ability to exercise oversight. Um, of the executive branch. Now, the executive branch, you know, and if we did that in the Pentagon, same thing. They, they could make individual decisions. You know, we also make policy decisions about we've really had to focus the last two or three years on increasing diversity. Um, we had the provision that may required them to change the names of the bases. This year, we have a provision that takes um, sexual assault prosecution away from the, the typical chain of command and creates a special victims prosecutor. Um, there's a whole series of oversights that we can do that make a difference. And then the third thing is something that we've always done, but that I've kind of ramped up in the last three years And that is to use it as a vehicle to accomplish other legislative priorities that can't get through the normal legislative process for the reasons I said before. Um, You know, we got, you know, there's a lot of focus on the Build Back Better plan and on, you know, uh, uh, paid family leave. You know, we got paid parental leave, not full family leave, but paid parental leave for all federal employees in the defense bill. Um, We actually succeeded in getting that done. We also, a year ago, Used to be the corporations didn't have to say who owned them. Major, major problem. The um, so-called beneficial ownership legislation that Carolyn Maloney had tra- uh, had championed for a long time, um, we passed it in the defense bill. Um, so we do get things from outside there. It make. I mean that, that that's basically it. That that's why I think yeah. it's important and why why we think it's important.
0: Well, you, you've certainly bullet-pointed a lot of what I want to get to in the next uh, a couple of minutes here as we begin to unpack this year's uh, NDAA. But certainly, as you say, you know the NDAA, things like the reconciliation bill, given the gridlock in Congress, the intransigence, uh, I think is maybe a better word, uh, this is kind of how the legislative process gets done these days. So um, th- I'd like to talk, this, uh, you know, you, you touched on some of the specifics in the bill, but I want to start with climate, because years ago, I know that you worked to pass a measure in Congress. Uh, declaring the climate crisis to be a threat to national security. However, the U.S. military continues to be one of the biggest polluters on the planet. And so I'm wondering, what is being done in this year's budget that is different than in past NDAAs?
1: Sure. I mean, well, the the, the Department of Defense is one of the world's largest consumers of energy. I mean, that that's why they're one of the biggest polluters. Um, you know, I mean, if you consume a lot of energy, your options in our current environment, and certainly they're getting better, but they were, you know, Problematic beforehand, um, is not very very clean. Uh, but what we've put into this year's bill, and some of this is a continuation of previous years' bills, sort of three big areas. One um, that by twenty thirty five have net zero on all military bases in terms of um, you know uh, c- carbon. Sorry, um, I'm spacing on the name of it, but the pollutants um going net net zero on carbon emissions and that requires a commitment um for efficiency for wind for solar for a whole bunch of other things so we've got that net zero requirement second major investment in energy storage um batteries because as you know part of the problem is a lot of the energy we generate gets lost before it is used if we can improve batteries um then we're going to make a huge step forward on that lastly new this year is a focus on data centers um so you know typically think of the military, we think of military, they're burning fuel and non-fuel efficient vehicles like Humvees and everything. And that's what the net zero goal is sort of focused on is getting us to to cleaner burning um, uh, vehicles. But we also have a ton of data centers um, that use a lot of water and a lot of energy. So there's a requirement to um, reduce those costs and to find ways to conserve energy and conserve water and how we run our data centers. Um, And then just in general, there are continuing investments in biofuels, in wind and solar um, that hopefully will benefit not just the military, but if they can make technological advancements, it could benefit the overall economy as well.
0: I also wanna talk about some quality of life issues that are in this year's NDAA for service members. Uh, and the place that I would like to start is, uh, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of people know, myself included, that there's real financial and food insecurity among militaries, particularly uh, enlisted military and those with families. How does this year's NDAA work to address some of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the big problem here um, is a problem that we're all facing. And that is, you know, rising costs as, as, you know, the basic costs of living housing being the, you know, the big one, you know, but just has significantly increased and it's increased for everybody. So if you're a service member and when you, if you go into the army, you know, as a, you know, private right off bad, you're not making a ton of money. I mean, we're talking, you know, $30,000 ish. And then, you know, people in the military tend, tend to get married earlier and they tend to have children earlier. So you've got a lot of, you know, 22, 23 year olds with, you know, that are married with two or three kids, you know, living off a very low salary and, you know, the cost of living factor. I mean, I'm struck by a story, of uh, army liaison who I traveled with major uh, she and her husband uh, were uh, moving to Fort Campbell in Kentucky, which is
0: not far from Nashville. And, That's you know, where my wife was born. I just have to put a plug in there.
1: <laughs> oh, cool! Yeah. Well, it is booming, um, which is fine, you know. But it also means that that housing costs have gone up significantly. So, in this year's bill, um, we put a provision to have sort of a a special needs set aside of money for people in focusing primarily on food insecurity in this case, because as the other bills run up, you know, there are members of the military who aren't food stamps who are struggling to provide food for their families and. Certainly there is a housing allowance, you know, in some cases there's a food allowance, depending on where you're stationed and how all that works. Um, but it is not meeting the cost. So, number one, we make that money available. Number two, we require the military to take a close look at what I just described. Okay, it's one thing if you're in Fort Polk, Louisiana, um, but if you're in Fort Lewis, you know, the costs are significant. And I have countless examples of how the basic daily allowance is not kept up with the costs in that particular region. So that was the big focus in this bill um, that I think was the person I think Jackie Spear Personnel Committee, you know, really worked on making sure that we had those additional funds available.
0: And certainly you're talking about some of the other uh, dynamics at play here in terms of uh, inflation and other economic factors that I do want to get to in a moment. Um, I I want to touch on the crisis of sexual assault in the military. I know this is an extremely important issue for you. Can you talk a little bit about what is in this year's NDAA? And and there's there's a lot. So I would love for you to just unpack some of the big things that that get done on sexual assault here.
1: Sure. We've worked on this issue for a number of years. Um, And there have been all kinds of training requirements, um, you know, reporting requirements, you know, changes in how the military is supposed to when, you know, when people make a claim of sexual assault victims rights. Um, and and frankly, none of it has moved the needle particularly high. Um, you know, there is still a major problem with sexual assault in the military. You got to get at the culture. Um, but one piece that had been argued for a number of years is the military is set up differently under the uniform code of military justice, the commander, and it depends and they break it down, which commanders actually have are in charge of prosecutions. Um, depending on the size of their unit, um, but there is always a unit, and the commander who is in charge, basically, of preparing um, his or her unit, is also in charge of prosecution. They decide, you know, what charges get filed, um, and you know this, you know, and and, and how you proceed with that. And there has long been a belief that the commanders have conflicts of interest that don't you know don't serve the interests of victims. Um, and you know, the easiest way to explain it is the end of the day, the number one biggest thing that your average commander is judged on is how ready is your unit? Okay. What is the training? They go in the field. Are they ready to go? Um, you know, and if you've got, you know, sexual assault charges coming at you, how do you balance that against making sure that the unit is ready? Now I submit that if you, the individual members of a given unit don't feel safe, then they're not ready. Uh, but the, it has become obvious that the commanders aren't capable of doing that. So there's been a proposal for a number of years to come out this in a variety of different ways. But the big thing is to take the authority to investigate and charge and prosecute sexual assaults away from the command structure and give it to the judge advocate general. And that is what we did this year, which is huge, um, because the military, Republicans, a whole bunch of people have resisted this for a very long time. We create a special prosecutor. Who is now in charge of all sex crimes, all crimes against children, murder, manslaughter, and kidnapping. And then also any crime that is related to any of those other crimes. So it's a pretty big swing. And this prosecutor now gets to decide, you know, what, what do you prosecute? And how, how do you charge that? And I think that, you know, that gives the victims a place to go that isn't their commander. But overall, final, one point is really important in all this. Victims have to feel like they are supported in coming forward. This helps, okay, because it's a judge advocate general, but we have to get to the point where they are confident that they will not face retribution either from the commander or within their unit if they bring a charge and it is, you know, fairly adjudicated. And we're still not there yet. Um, you know, and Sorry, Vanessa Gian, was the woman who was murdered um, down in Fort Hood. Her family really led the charge on this. And I worked very closely with them as well as Jackie Spear in the house. Um, and I think we got a pretty good good step here in this bill.
0: Yeah, uh, it, it sounds encouraging. And I, I'm glad that things seem to be moving at least in the right direction. Um, there are, are also a number of line items addressing racial equity issues in the military, something that I, I know was also very important to you. Can you just detail a few of those for us?
1: The biggest thing we did this, we did some stuff last year um, in terms of creating a chief diversity officer and creating a special inspector general to look at diversity issues. The biggest thing we did this year is on data collection, Um, because you get at the question of, okay, are um, people of color disproportionately not being promoted? Are they disproportionately being charged with crimes? Are they being sentenced more harshly? Um, And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about that, but we don't really have the hard data. Uh, So this year we've required them um, to delineate that in terms of promotions and in terms of also how the UCMJ is administered uh, based on race and ethnicity um, to, to keep track of that data. And I will say Secretary Austin has also taken steps independent of what we pass legislatively um to confront racism and to promote diversity within the military this is of course controversial the republicans are upset that you know we're paying attention to these things instead of focusing on the fight um i again submit that the single most important thing we have in the military and everyone says this is the people you know and if the people don't feel like they're being fairly treated and protected then you do not have the military you should um racism also we are looking at violent extremism um as an issue as well um so the, 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 there's progress being made both legislatively and in terms of what secretary austin is doing and it helps enormously to have the first black um secretary of defense you know i mean and we also have the, our air force chief of staff is is also um black so we're beginning to increase diversity is like a long, long way to go.
0: Yeah, and I do want to follow up on, on extremism in the military pursuant to a conversation that you and I had last year. You know, one of the things that the the NDAA does, it makes significant investments in academic partnerships in historically black colleges and universities. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Uh, what is wh- how are these two things going to work together, do you think? Yeah,
1: we've done that for a number of years. and We enhanced that this year. I mean, the HBCU is a couple of one recruitment um first of all you know you can recruit uh into the military but then also but you're not talking
0: rotc programs or are you
1: yeah no but just you know to build the relationship beyond even ROTC, just to you know build that relationship so if you have a you know young person at an hbcu who's interested in career in the military um they're connected um and we do that recruitment directly but as importantly, more importantly, is the investments, um, the military mix. Um, they got a ton of programs, University of Washington's got a bunch of programs, um, you know, research um, and a variety of different things to specifically focus and make sure that some of that DOD research money goes to HBCUs um, to investigate one thing or another. I mean, i I was out at Washington my son is a freshman at Washington State University so I was out at Pullman last October they have a program out there they're working on drone technology that can fly on non-gaseous hydrogen um, and it's a grant from DoD and they've got you know students and you know graduates you know doing this research on how to develop this Those types of programs we make sure that hbcus get a good chunk of that to enhance that relationship.
0: I was not aware that uh, you were a house divided, uh, Wazoo yeah, versus U Dub. I, I Here hope I am goes. wearing.
1: I have a cougar sweatshirt now, which okay. um, right. which my chief of staff um, bought me right after Jack decided to go to Wazoo. Um, she's a cougar, so I, I've worn it. I,
0: all I, right, I, all, I, right. Have all right, cool. Yeah, everything sounds sounds mellow in the, in the Smith household. Um, are there things that you fought for that didn't make it in? That if you retain control of the committee, that you will fight for next year.
1: Um, you know, the biggest thing that the, the yes is the answer to that question. Um, you know, that's always the case. Um, and uh, which gets us into a conversation of how you pass complex pieces of legislation in Congress, which is worth getting into um, later. You know, I think biggest thing, you know, is repeal of the 2002 AUMF, uh, not strictly speaking in our jurisdiction, um, but the whole AUMF
0: issue. And this is the authorization, I'm just going to jump in, authorization for military yeah. force that was authorized after 9-11. Yeah.
1: yeah, well, this. no, this is actually the 2002. This is the one that was authorized for the invasion of Iraq. Oh, pardon uh, me. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, so, for the okay. so, and believe it or not, there are on the books, unrepealed, a fair number of these AU going back quite a ways. And, you know, I just don't think we should leave these things open-ended. That again, gives more power to the executive branch um, and takes it away from the legislative branch. Um, and you know, we also would like to revisit the 2001 AUMF. Um, another big chunk of this, which is somewhat connected, is um, sanctions and human rights issues um, globally. We had a number of provisions that were aimed at, you know, restricting our relationship with certain problematic countries, Philippines, Guatemala, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, and I don't think we made as much progress in those things as we should have. Um, you know, also another big one was um, uh, getting women to sign up for the the draft, um, selective service. Now, I'll tell you the truth, and I'm curious what people think. I don't know that we need selective service anymore. Um, I think it might, you know, might be arguable that we should repeal it. I mean, the whole point behind selective service is that the U S government knows where our 18 to 26 year olds are so that if the time comes, we can draft them. I think under the circumstances, given the amount of information out there, we know where they are. They don't have to go online and sign up. You know, there's a requirement, which I was completely unaware of that once you sign up, um, between the age of 18, 26, you're supposed to notify selective service every time you move. Oh. How many people between the ages of 18 and 26 do you think actually do that?
0: I never did. <laughs> yes.
1: I never did. Okay. You know, so there's that argument. But if you're going to have it, you know, another big push within the military is equality um, to make sure that women can not just serve, but can have the same opportunities. You know, if they can do the job, they should do the job. So selective service was a, was a big thing that we dropped um, because of Republican opposition. Oh, GetMo, Gitmo, I think, is the biggest you know, getting us on yeah. the path to shutting that down. And, and, and the first step in that path is to stop making it illegal for the president to do it. Now we did, we just transferred two more prisoners. I think we're down to 37 um, now that are at Guantanamo. But I would love to um, get rid of the restrictions on closing the prison and building facilities in the U.S. to house those, those uh, detainees um there's probably there's more i
0: mean gosh it's sure sure then that obviously would be bad, something that was, that's yeah.
1: sort of the highlights of you know how we went into those negotiations
0: right and taking on something that is controversial is that obviously would have to wait until next year i would imagine uh just a couple of quick follow-ups um these are things that you and i discussed uh previously about last year's ndaa so we spoke about extremism in the military um we know that one in five people arrested in the capital insurrection had military ties yeah. what has been done um, within the military to address this in the year since January 6th? And is there anything specific to the NDAA? Well, I think the big
1: thing that, um, no, is the answer. That's another thing that we didn't get. Um, Anthony Brown, uh, a member of the committee from Maryland, had a very you know strong provision on extremism in the military. Defined it and then laid out the steps of what um, that the Pentagon should do if they find it. And we were unable to get agreement on that. Um, but the big stuff that has happened is with Secretary Austin. Um, you know, he has done these stand downs across the military service to examine these questions, focused on extremism, focused on diversity, focused on racism, and it really sort of raised the dialogue. Um, and also, the military just came out the standard that said, you know, you cannot actively be part of um, a variety of different groups um, and still serve in the military. Um, and basically, the focus is on groups that advocate the violent overthrow of our government which sort of seems like something you shouldn't be supportive of uh, if you're serving in the military. So Secretary Austin's moved on that. It's really controversial because, I mean, you saw just yesterday, I think it was the Republicans announcing that January 6th was legitimate. Legitimate political political
0: discourse. discourse. Yeah. Boy, those words are going to go down in history, aren't they?
1: Yeah. Um, So, you know, the Republicans are of the opinion that this is an effort simply to penalize Trump supporters. Um, And, you know, I'm, Sure, some of you saw the hearing we had where we discussed extremism, where um, Chairman Milley and Matt Gates got into a little bit of a back and forth on that. You know, the you know the Republicans want to portray this as you know the military wants to teach critical race theory and do all these other things. Um, you know, when in fact it's a matter of making sure that people who serve in the military are loyal to this country and that people who serve in the military are not being discriminated against
0: both of which I believe to be worthy objectives. I wanna follow up also with you on the 1033 program. We had a a long discussion about this last year. And so this is a program that would send surplus military equipment to local and state law enforcement. There is my understanding that there were a number of amendments in the NDAA uh, this year to curb this program. Did any of those amendments, if I'm correct, did any of those amendments make it into the final bill?
1: Um, I'm sorry. I was looking at the chat, which I should never do. But uh, say that again.
0: I shall repeat. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I catch myself doing it yeah. quite a bit. As what are you know? What are distractions? Things are shiny yeah. here when we're yes. when we're on on uh, Zoom together. Um, so, as I said, I wanted to follow up with the ten thirty three program. Oh, so yeah, okay program. It. Yeah. I got it. yeah, yeah. So, I just.
1: So, look, I mean, the 1033 program is where the military um, provides surplus military equipment to municipalities, basically, to local police forces, you know, cities, counties, that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, the, the, the extreme end of this is military grade weapons and things like tanks and, you know. Um, striker vehicles being given to local. It's part of the over militarization of our police force, which I think should be a central focus of police reform, the overly aggressive approach to policing um, that is not necessary. And there are certain specific ways to reform that, which I urge us to work on. Um, It doesn't involve, by the way, cutting the police budget. It involves changing what they do with that budget, uh, which is where I think our central focus should be. But that gets us off on another little tangent there, which I'll stop on um the 1033 program you know the obama administration put in place an executive order that limited what could be transferred because there is a fair amount of this they transfer computers they transfer desk furniture um you know sure. but then they also transfer like big stuff um so we tried to limit
0: it right and- yeah and if, I, if i may just jump in I, yeah. you and i kind of detailed all of this the last time that we spoke right. and i was just wondering if anything had any progress had been made on this particularly i can uh, tell you what happened as pertain to the ndaa <laughs> please
1: Yeah. So we had this discussion and I met with a variety of different groups about what they wanted to do. And there was one bill out there. Hank Johnson had a bill that was very aggressive um, at, you know, limiting the 1033 program um, even further than what the Obama administration did in their executive order. And, you know, I met with the groups that were advocating for that on several occasions um, and talked about the fact that, you know, do we have the votes for this? Um, they don't much like that conversation, by the way. Um, the principle should overcome whether or not you have the votes. And I understand that it is a balance. I think you do have to push the envelope. I pushed the envelope with paid parental leave. The idea that the Republicans would agree to that and Donald Trump would sign the bill seemed ludicrous. Push the envelope, push it in a bunch of different directions. But at some point, you do have to say, can we do this or can we not do this? And they wanted that specific 1033 provision. And I talk to people. And I felt we didn't have the votes for that. And was there something we could do short of that, which caused the whole thing to go like, you know, there wasn't a lot of analysts. We actually, there's what might be some people here who are on the call. I had a call like the week before markup in which they wanted to talk to me. So I was like 25 different people wanted to talk about the ten thirty-three program. And they went around and around about what they wanted. Well, we want this, we want that one. And then finally I, you know, got a little bit frustrated um, and said, look, you know, we gotta do. We gotta. You can't pick ten different options here. All right. We're on the. We're in committee. We're on the floor. We gotta go forward. And and in the end of the day, they decided not to do anything in committee. Um, didn't want to offer an amendment. And then on the floor, we had the same discussion. And they decided to offer um the shots and provision, and it failed. The amendment went down. Um, and we were unable to to get it out. So then we could compromise. So that's what happened this year with the ten thirty three program. I so, want to, if I could. Someone asked some questions me. about the sexual assault thing. And I sure. want to get into this because I spent a lot of time negotiating this. And there were people, um, Senator Jill Brand, uh chief among them, who had a slightly different take on how we should do this.
0: Um, is this in to, response to a question that came up in the in the yeah, chat? It's on the chat. If um, you could, I, I would like to read this for, for listeners. Please delineate uh, sorry, please delineate the powers that commanders do
1: do not retain over military sexual cases. Do they they still determine whether to call a court into existence, name the jury, control the budget for the court, blah, 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 blah? And this I dove into in great detail. This has to do with the convening authority. So a whole lot of things happen um, when you're trying to prosecute a case. Um, And the one thing to understand commanders do not now control the judge within the military. This was something that Senator Gillibrand's office seemed not to quite grasp. Um, there was a separate group of people as a pool of judges, you know, and if the authority is convened, um, yes, the commander decides whether or not to convene an authority. But in our law, we said that if the special prosecutor decides to charge, the commander must convene the authority. It does not have the option of saying, eh, no, we're not going to do that. So once convened, a separate organization within the military picks the judge. There's a pool of judges. He says, okay, Fred, you're up. This is your case. Okay. Once the judge is picked, that judge then controls the trial. The only thing that the commander retains is the ability to pick the jury pool. Okay. Let's say the commander has 5,000 people under her command um, and you know they got to pick any given case, they go through void void um, I don't know, 150 people. So you pick 150 at random, and then they go through the normal process. Prosecutor, defense lawyer, they have challenges, the judge decides, blah, blah, blah. So that's the way the process works. So the commander doesn't have any say anymore in this set of crimes. He or she just doesn't. Um, you know, it goes through that process. Final piece on this, which was a bit of a debate, well who does the judge advocate respond to? I mean, it's part of the military. Um, Well, the judge advocate responds to the service secretaries. And this was crucial, something that Jackie Spear insisted upon, which I had to fight for, um, which at one time or another, my various counterparts in there were not gonna do it. And I said, yeah, we just, we don't have a bill here if you don't do this. And that is to make sure that a civilian is at the top of that chain of command. And the civilian in question is the service secretary. So Army, Navy, um, Air Force secretary, is in charge now of this whole thing um, as opposed to the Secretary of Defense. So that's how it works.
0: Well, I I very much appreciate uh, that unpacking, and I hope, Catherine, that that answers your question as well. So we're going to shift gears now completely, and I want to talk about the situation in Ukraine. um, And particularly, I want to get your take on it as it relates to the fight for democracy here in the West. So as we know, everybody uh, watching and listening today knows that Russia has now deployed hundreds of thousands of troops to the Ukrainian border. um, And a number of people, including President Biden, uh, have said that they believe that an invasion is very likely imminent even. Um, The U.S. in response has sent troops to Poland, Germany, Romania, and has sent arms directly to Ukraine. I'll just ask you, first and foremost, what do you make of, how do you assess the president's response here thus far? And how much have you been involved with this response?
1: Yeah, I've been involved quite a bit. I've spoken to Jake Sullivan a number of times, spoken to Secretary Austin, uh, Chairman Milley um you know keeping track of what's going on um and i've spoken to the white house a couple times try to keep track of it overall i think president biden has done done well um his press conference being the exception to that statement um you you do have to be careful if you're going to stay on message not to talk for two hours um it's really hard to stay on message if you're talking
0: (laughs) for two hours um i think his staff was feeling the same way yeah
1: So, but that minor little point aside, um, what we want to do here um, is deter Putin from invading Ukraine. And I know there's a whole lot of backstory here. You go all the way back to the Monroe Doctrine, to our decisions to expand NATO, and on and on and on. I get that. But right now, here today, in this moment... Uh, Russia is trying to militarily intimidate a sovereign nation with a democratically elected government. We should not be for that. Um, we should be unequivocally against it, and we should not justify Putin's actions in doing that. Um, now, the number one biggest message, I think, is diplomacy. Let's work with our allies and talk with the Russians, and Biden's doing that. Um, you know, Milley is talking to his counterpart. Lavrov and Blinken um, are talking. Biden and Putin have even talked a couple of times. Uh, I, I think diplomacy, so that there's no misunderstanding, so that you know deterrence doesn't cross over the line into provocation. Uh, that we have open and clear lines of communications. And I think the president's doing that. Um, now what's going to deter Putin from going into Ukraine? Um, I think the two biggest things are you know, the cost, you know, if and, and that's why I think it's important to send arms to Ukraine. It's important to support their defenses so that if Putin goes in there, it's going to cost him in in lives and treasure and time more than he anticipated um, and to make him aware of that upfront. Second big thing is what Putin wants well he wants to reconstitute the Soviet Empire. Uh, as he has famously said, the worst thing that ever happened in the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Empire. So he'd like to get it back. Now, he'd like to do that as painlessly as possible. Um, but the big thing step in his mind to doing that is to get us out. He wants NATO and Europe, Western Europe, sorry, out of Eastern Europe. Um, so by sending troops to Poland and Romania, by strengthening our relationships with the Baltic states, I am planning in a week and a half to go to Estonia and Poland. Um, anything we can do to sort of show Putin, look, we are going to be more involved in Eastern Europe if you do this, not less. That undercuts the objective. And, and let's also understand, okay? You know, people have said, well, what if Putin was, you know, sending, you know, doing some sort of defense pact with Mexico? We don't really threaten mexico um, at the moment eastern europe is tired of being dominated by russia the soviet union or whatever and they have a right to that okay you know they have a right if they want to do an economic you know deal with western europe fine okay if they want to do a defense deal with western europe and us that's fine too and we ought to protect that gets to your democracy point um and and no the us did not lead the coup in ukraine in 2014. hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians rose up because they felt that their leader was a corrupt Russian puppet. Now, we can say in retrospect, you should have waited for the next election, Um, but they didn't. Um, And Since then, we've had a series of elections in Ukraine, and we have a duly elected government. Um, It's also interesting, when I was in Ukraine in August, um, prior to 2014, Ukrainians had a basically positive view of Russia, um, but that faded, because I forget the guy's name, but the guy who was the, the president, um, who was close to Putin, um, you know, was doing things that I didn't like. But then when they threw him out and Russia came in and invaded Ukraine, and there's an ongoing war in eastern Ukraine, has been for eight years now. Um, I was when I was in, it's Kiev now, apparently, not Kiev. Yeah, I was going to say, I've
0: heard uh, it being pronounced <laughs> Kiev. Yeah. Yes.
1: But there's there there's a this huge memorial that I walked by in the morning on my morning walk with you know hundreds of Ukrainians who have died, you know, fighting in eastern Ukraine against Russian separatists. Um, so this is this is a thing, and we ought to protect a sovereign democratic state.
0: The, Hollis has asked for a clarification. I, I had mentioned that the United States has not amassed any troops uh, within Ukraine's borders, but. Uh, Uh, Hollis wanted to clarify Russian troops have not recently been staged on the Ukrainian border and many troops are 160 miles away from the Ukrainian border border. I, I, I would imagine if that is true, it, that would may possibly be in, in Belarus. What is your knowledge of the situation?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. One, we all we have, and I visited them, um, they're sort of in central Ukraine, a little bit to the west of Kiev. Um, we have about yeah, 150, 200 U.S. troops that are engaged in training exercises with other NATO allies as well uh, involved there, big, huge space. Um, but now the Russians are pretty much on the border and they're in Belarus. Um, The situation with Belarus is complicated, but um, they're now coming close to being sort of a a Russian puppet state as well. Lukashenko, dictator, wanting to hold on to power, even though he lost the last election. Stop me where you've you've heard that before. Um, But (laughs) he he, he was able to do it. um, And now he's got Russian support and he's not in a position to say no to Russia because the rest of the world has turned on him. Um, So there are Russian troops in Belarus, which is about 100 miles from Kyiv. Um, so they're right on the border, unless I'm missing something. And it's not hundreds of thousands, by the way, it's like 150,000 yeah. uh, Russian troops.
0: You you made the comment about uh, some of the similarities between uh, what's going on there and, and what has happened here. And I, I, I laughed through my tears, of course, as many people do. But, um, you know... You, uh, a lot of analysts believe that the reason why Putin is doing this is because he sees weakness here in the United States. He Poland. he knows that there are nationalists waiting in the wings in Austria, France, Netherlands, not to mention Poland. There are authoritarians in power in Hungary, Poland elsewhere, and and certainly our geopolitical uh, situation is 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 very precarious right now. So I'll ask you a very big question which I know you have lots of thoughts on and that is This situation seems to be pushing everything to a head. How do you see all of this fitting together with a larger fight for democracy?
1: I want to make one point and then get into that larger point. Um, Something that Republicans love to say is that weakness invites aggression. Um, That is very misleading. It's true to a certain point, but it is also true that aggression invites aggression. Okay, so this notion that all we have to do is punch someone in the mouth constantly and therefore there will be no conflict is absurd. So I think diplomacy is really important. I only say that because, you know, I, I don't think that it's I mean... I don't think it's just the fact that Putin perceives weakness that he's doing this. Okay, I think he's an autocratic dictator who wants as much power. That was
0: why I stressed to say one of the reasons. I certainly didn't mean to imply that it was the only reason. And he's
1: going to push the envelope wherever he can push it. But look, there is a fine line between deterrence and provocation. And I think we need to be mindful of that. You know, give you one example right now. You know, the Republicans and frankly, some Democrats are advocating that we impose sanctions on Russia more than uh, sanctions above what we've already imposed on them, now, before the invasion. I don't think that makes sense. I mean, if we're trying to use those sanctions as a deterrent, you sanction him now, okay, it shows strength, I guess. But it also, you know, then Putin doesn't have to worry about it. If it's going to happen already, he might as well invade. It, just, it doesn't make sense, and it it feeds into that whole, you know, Thomas Friedman idea of, you know, if you steal my turkey, I better shoot you in the head, or you know. So you had to have read Beirut uh, to Jerusalem to appreciate that reference. But anyway, um, you know, I, I just don't think we can live in an eye for an eye world. I think we have to find ways to find off ramps and get 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 to a peaceful resolution. But the big question you just said. You know, I, I'm worried that the United States is not as inclined as we should be to stand up for economic and political freedom globally, because both Xi and Putin right now are aggressively pushing the line. Their system works better than our system, you know, and yeah, that's what they're trying to do on COVID. I mean, they do all these these lockdowns and all this other stuff, see, you know, see, a, only a dictator can protect people. And meanwhile, that dictator is, you know, committing, you know, some genocide is a big word. And I try not to throw that word around, but certainly they are persecuting the hell out of the Uyghurs um, in China. We've seen what they've done in Hong Kong. We know what they want to do in Taiwan. And then this idea that, you know, an autocracy is a more effective form of government is what they are pushing. And if we don't push back, you, you wind up with Kazakhstan. We saw is headed in that direction now. Belarus. You mentioned Hungary and Poland, Brazil. You know, I believe in economic and political freedom, and I think the U.S. should stand up and, and support that. That doesn't mean you know a trillion-dollar defense budget, and that the only way we can support it is to prove that we're willing to nuke the world in order to promote our our values. No, but it does mean that we shouldn't. We should, that we should be 100% clear on why those values matter and try to rally similar uh, similarly minded states across the world to say, you know, we got to stand up for what we believe in here.
0: I'll just ask you uh, very bluntly, how concerned are you about the state of democracy uh, in, in the West and in the world? And does that impact how involved the United States should get in this situation?
1: I am very concerned about it. I'm very concerned about it here in the US, and I'm very concerned about it here globally. Um, and I also put it this way, I, I think we should be much more engaged in the world. Now, I think we got to have a balanced approach here. I mean, you can't come in and force, you know, democracy is not the only issue. You got to provide for the people too. I mean, we saw that, you know, we forced democracy in the Gaza Strip and Hamas won the election and that was the end of the election, another, or sorry, the end of democracy, another You know, Thomas Friedman quote is, you know, one person, one vote, one time. Um, You also have to build the institutions to support the broader place and and demanding elections all the time isn't necessarily the only way to promote economic and political freedom. And that's the way I like to put it, as I've now said it like 10 times. Um, It's not just democracy. It's the idea that people ought to have the freedom to, you know, economically invest where they want to and politically have their views heard and have a vote. So, yes, I think we should do that. But domestically, we're not really standing up for it here either. You know, we've become trapped in ideology, we've become trapped in outcomes. You don't really hear people talk anymore about why it is valuable to have a democracy. You know, we talk about how, you know, if you're on the right, you talk about how crime is too high and homelessness is, you know, too high and, you know, restrictions are too high. Uh, if you're on the left, you talk about how healthcare ought to be a human right. You know, all these outcomes but no one says, look, it matters, even if you don't get the outcome you want. Another thing I love about the NDAA, by the way, is it's this process playing out. We bring everybody in. We have a conversation. We get to it. We get get votes, And we go for it. We need to start teaching that again in America, that the reason democracy matters is not because you get what you want every time and not because it makes the right decision every time, but because it is the best way to have a fair, just, and prosperous society, to give everyone a voice. To have, to have rules okay structure okay you get your voice, you get your voice, we vote we have outcome you won you lost and then we do it again. okay once you start saying no, the outcome is what matters all right the out and if I don't get my outcome then I don't care democracy whatever if I can get what I want to an autocracy, that's fine okay And too many on the right and left seem to be going down that road and we're not teaching even in the basic level in schools. Why it's valuable. And also, we're not teaching why, you know, with a whole lot of warts, it's actually kind of worked in the US for a couple hundred years. Um, sorry, I have one little final piece on this, this particular grant. Sure. But, you know, and when we formed this country, you know, all men are created equal, obvious flaw in that sentence right off the bat. Um, but, but second, it wasn't even true. Okay. When we formed this country, it was basically the idea that white male property owners should have a voice. That's what it was. Okay. Eh, You know, which is not great. But when you think about it, at that particular time in the world, the idea that anybody other than the king or whoever, whatever despot happened to be in charge, should have a voice was crazy. So to expand it to even white male property owners was revolutionary, literally. And we've expanded it since then. Um, You know, and we should continue to make sure that we protect the franchise. Um, But we shouldn't denigrate what doing that has helped accomplish in the world for all its flaws and faults. So yes, democracy is in jeopardy. I think we ought to do a better job of advocating for
0: it. And I think one of the things that struck me with what you just said was that we should explore why it is valuable to have a democracy. And I wanna to return to that and, and perhaps close on that, that very sentiment and really have you unpack that because, uh, and I will just billboard, uh, that a lot of people are just feeling very demoralized, very burnt out right now. And I think having something to really work toward uh, can, can be very useful. Um, just very briefly, because I know that we're, we're running up against the clock here, I want to get your take on some of what you think the Democrats should focus on for the remainder of the term. And the first place I want to start is the Electoral Count uh, Reform Act. So there is a bipartisan movement to reform the Electoral Count Act, which would ideally, and I stress ideally, prevent the kind of maneuvering that Trump tried to do with preventing uh, the certification in 2020. It is no secret that Democrats wanted to get so much more done on voting rights. There are two people who have stood in the way of that. Um, well, actually, there's 52 people who have stood in the way on that. Thank um, you. You, you know what? Actually, I really, really appreciate you making that point because I have I've, I've played into that right. narrative and I did not mean to. But the, yeah. the exactly right. I, I think the recalcitrance uh, for Republicans to actually stand up for voting rights is, is is such an excellent point. So thank you for helping me make that. Um, but I do feel like this particular a piece of legislation a lot of people are looking at it as largely symbolic uh given the other challenges that we face w- what are your thoughts on proceeding my, with this
1: my, my thoughts are that it's largely symbolic given all about the other challenges that we face um that's i think a pretty good summary of my thoughts um look you know we, we got a major challenge here um and I think it is really important to step back and say what what what's the best way to approach this? What's the be- best message? Which, how do we go? You know, number one is to not let the Republicans off the hook, which we have done repeatedly over the course of the last year. Now, granted, the the, the media, you know everything look I mean, You're trying to put together a bill, you know, the Republicans say no, and then you go try to focus on, you know, but we have focused on, you know, why can't Democrats pass this? Why can't Democrats do that? Um, To the point where we have fed into the narrative that if there's anything wrong in this country, it's because of Democrats, you know, problems. Um, And I know there are people who want to take down the Democratic Party, even from within the Democratic Party, and I don't agree with them on that, but at least I understand what they're trying to do. But for those of you who don't want to take down the Democratic Party, um, who think that it's worth fighting for and that it's certainly a better alternative than the Republicans, we got to stop feeding into this narrative. On voting rights, on child care, on you know, expanding benefits for seniors, on climate change, every single one of those. The reason those things didn't pass is because the Republicans locked up against it. The Republicans do not want to expand access to Medicare. The Republicans do not want to expand access to health care. They don't want to expand access to child care. They don't want to protect people's right to vote. And we should be saying that over and over again. And we're not. You know, we're over and over again talking about how terrible Manchin and Sinema are. Well, okay, Um, but that gives the Republicans a pass. That's number one. Number two, you know, one of the problems when you're in charge, it's good to feel responsible. It's terrible to run that way. Um, I've joked that if I could get away with it in my reelection campaigns, I'd never let anyone know that I'm actually a member of Congress. Um, That's (laughs) just a joke
0: because 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 I do like to
1: talk about, Okay, here I think I am really kind of effective, um, particularly as chairman of the Armed Services Committee. But I think there are a lot of things that as a member of Congress, I've done. But I can tell you, and this this comes from my central education in life. Didn't happen at Fordham. It didn't happen at the University of Washington. Didn't happen in high school. It happened knocking on 50,000 doors from 1990 to 1996. Um, and really just listening to people. And I learned early on, if you go up to someone and say, you should support me because of all I've done for you. At least the people where I live are going to go, yeah, right. Um, You know, you've solved my problems in life. How come I have all these other problems? How come you didn't fix those? You can't leave. And this is what Democrats, you know, I remember having this conversation with Mike Lowry back in 1993, as he explained to me that everything would be fine because of all the legislation that we passed, at which point I wanted to slam my head into the table. Um, You know, passing legislation is not going to get you reelected. It's just not. Okay. It's important. I'm not saying it's not. I say you got to work it in there. You have to have a message to the people about what you stand for and about the future, about what you're planning to do. And here I see Democrats all wrapped up. And I want to get as much of Build Back Better Past as possible. Whether we do that or not is going to have a negligible impact on whether or not we win. I mean, and and why, you know, I'd fire any goddamn pollster out there who tells me something different. All right. Because what the hell are you paying attention to? Doesn't change what we should try to do, but be aware of it for messaging purposes. We should talk about the things that we're for and what our message is. And basically, I think the democratic argument is inequality in the United States of America is off the charts, out of control, and brutalizing you know countless aspects of our population. And we're going to go after it. You know, We are going to try to help the working families and the poor people in this country who don't have access to the basic things they should. And the Republicans are going to try to stop us every step of the way. I did this little rant, I think the last time I was on here, arguing about five trillion, six trillion, two trillion, one children, yeah, trillion, you know, getting into the sausage making process. We should have been, you know, pick what you want to pick. I pick childcare. and childcare child care is unbelievably important because how children develop feeds into all this other stuff and the pressure on families right now to try to provide child care, paid family medical leave. Talk about why that's important. Talk about what we want to do on that. And anytime they try to drag you down the road of, well, yes, but you proposed this bill and you promised that you would do this and that didn't actually pass, vector away from that, Okay. It's hard, you know, I, I remember, oh God, I could tell a story of my, when I, when I was 29 years old and I was running for a re-election, the Highline Times back when it existed um, was interviewing me and man, they were brutal on me. Um, but I know people said, yeah, you know, well, you shouldn't sound defensive. Well, how do you not sound defensive when you're under full scale attack? Um, but you can in fact do it. It just mm, it, it requires a little dexterity. So that's the message I want to get back to is number one, the Democratic Party has to be 100% clear on the fact that we're better than the Republicans. We're going to be better for this country. Um, we're, we're going to stand up for the things that people want. We're going to fight for greater equality. You know, we're, we're, we're going to fight to protect all people, not just the privileged and the rich. Um, and you know, and we got to get that message out there. We're still trapped in the.
0: Can I dovetail on that, because I I love everything that you're saying, and in fact, Kat, I I know that we're thinking along the same lines here that we absolutely need to create uh, just this section to send out to people, because, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to talk with you today was about messaging, and so here we are. A a, a second component of that, besides talking about what we're for, is is defining and and Republicans, unfortunately, are very, very good at this, is defining what their opponents stand for. How much do you think we need to lean on the fact that Republicans present a clear and present existential danger to this country? And how much do you think that's going to resonate with voters?
1: Not as much as if we focus on the fact that Republicans don't support helping struggling people and struggling families in this country. And you know, believe me, I see, I see the threat, I know what happened on January 6th and I know what's going on and it needs to be part of our message. Part of our message is that the Republicans are extreme and they're under the control of, of the Donald Trump cult um, and they are therefore a threat to democracy. But the much bigger part of our message, the part that, that really resonates with people in their day-to-day lives, is what we're going to do to deal with the issues that they're facing, to deal with the economic challenges, food insecurity, housing insecurity, economic insecurity, unequal pay, no benefits, no health care, and to drive home the fact that the Republicans don't care about any of that. The Republicans are, you're on your own. Um, everything's fine. You know, We're not going to give you that help. I will also say that we have to say something about public safety. It is the number one issue in the minds of a lot
0: of voters right now. How, um, do, we, how, the- how, do, how do we message around that? Because I know that it is something that is top of mind, as you say, but it's, it's something that I think is going to be very tricky for Democrats to get right.
1: What, what are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, first of all, you, know, you can't correct all the past mistakes. But like I said, you know, focusing on defunding the police or even cutting the police budget was the wrong message. Um, I think what we need to focus on is, you know, re- reforming the police, making them more effective members of our community. Um, Their you know, they're, they're policing is too aggressive. And also, we've got the police doing things they shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, let's let's instead of, you know, cut the defense budget, let's let's sorry, the, the police budget. Um, let's f- affirmatively focus on getting social workers out there. I've got the bill on the on the health one program that's in Seattle and trying to expand it. Um, to have actual you know, mental health um, and social workers available to go out and deal um, with domestic disputes are, are things that don't require police, the CAHOOTS program that is that is being run right. in Eugene. I think there are things we can do. So you will be safer if we do this. Um, but if our message is focused on um, on simply defunding, then we, we really lose the thread. And then also there's the issue of restorative justice, which we're dealing with here um, in King County and across the country. And I think restorative justice is unbelievably important. I don't think every time somebody breaks a rule or breaks a law, you need to throw the book at them. I just don't. You know, you've got to perceive the situation. And if you can really sit down, have a conversation, figure out what's going on with that person's life, get them to a better place without having to go through that is awesome. It is, however, not... A substitute, always for having laws and enforcing them. This is not. I mean, you have to have both things. I mean, sometimes you do have to have negative consequences for doing something that we as a society have decided is against the law. And I think in too many instances, we've just said it's going to be all restorative justice. You know, nobody ever needs to have negative consequences for for disobeying the law. And i think that's created some problems in terms of how you know it's certainly created some animosity um, amongst people who are getting their cars stolen and their windows bashed in um or you know the murder rate has gone up significantly so we have to make the case for why restorative justice is part of a, of a broader broader agenda um but when you go so far as to say you know we're not ever going to arrest or incarcerate anyone or the other thing we've done, um, you know, it's funny, I was on a call with uh, traumatic brain injury folks, you know, which does military tie in, but also local stuff. And of all things, she, she said they were really concerned because, you know, I think it was King County that got rid of our bike helmet law, um, you know, and, and apparently that's really important in terms of, you know, protecting people and making sure they don't wind up with traumatic brain injuries. But we got rid of it because it, the allegation was that it's being disproportionately enforced. People of color are more often cited for it. And I just think the thing to do there is to go in and make sure that the enforcement is fair, that it's not biased. You know, We got the same thing with Sound Transit now where we've stopped asking people if they paid. We've stopped enforcing it. And it's really hurting Sound Transit's budget because fewer and fewer people are paying. Um, I think there's a better approach to reducing incarceration, to reducing aggressive policing that makes the community safer. Um, I think we can do both of those things. I don't have all the answers in this one. Sure, sure. But I will tell you, if if the answer from Democrats for the rest of this year on public safety is to talk about something else. Right. Yeah, we, we got to figure out how, how to address it. I can go over if there's there's a few other questions.
0: Well, yeah. Thank you. And I, it's it's my understanding that you, uh, and you you may uh, say say otherwise, but it's my understanding that you are free until one thirty. Is that correct? That's what I saw on my uh, on my. Uh... Wonderful. We will try not to keep you the, the, the whole time, but I do have just one more question here that is kind of a bread and butter issue. And this gets me thinking about, you know, what you were just talking about, about, you know, uh, police, uh, public safety and things like that, and then sort of the, the ability to be, to, to be chewing gum and walking at the same time, as they say. So we can talk about those sorts of issues, but then we also start to talk about the bread and butter issues that we know whole well and things like that. And so uh, top of mind is the America Competes Act. Uh, so for people who may not have been following this, this is a huge bill just passed um, on Friday, passed the House on Friday. It is aimed at making the U.S. more competitive with countries, specifically like China on the manufacturing front. And it does quite a bit. It's like a, it's, a, it's I think three thousand. Twenty nine hundred pages. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And that was before we- the amendments. So who knows? <laughs> So it creates jobs, apprenticeships. Uh, it seeks international cooperation on things like the, the climate, human rights. Um, I'll just ask you uh, very briefly, and then from here we will get into audience questions. What happens next with this bill? And do you think this is the kind of bill that can actually create momentum for the Democrats right now?
1: Again, I, you know, anytime anyone comes at me and says the key to our reelection is passing a piece of legislation, I literally roll my eyes um so you know for all those complicated reasons that i mentioned
0: earlier so in terms Und- understood of hope- uh, i just uh it, it is a subtle beast momentum is a very subtle beast it has lots of yeah. working parts i think there are a lot of people hoping that uh, biden's successful appointment to the uh, supreme court will have a similar yeah. i think reno- that helps yeah. yeah i mean look i mean
1: anything the biden administration can do that shows that they have a certain level of competence is going to be a positive because that's taken some blows here recently um and that was a big part of why he got elected was the idea that you know we were going to stop the clown show uh, and we were actually going to run government in an intelligent way, um, and there certainly have been some hiccups along those roads. So yes, I think I think it is a positive. All right, don't don't get me wrong. Like I said, I just you know go back to all that messaging stuff I said earlier that I think is really important. Um, Jack Smith, sorry. Um, I think the American Competes Act. Helps in the sense that this is part of what we need to do with China. Rather than you know focusing on you know, the military aspect of it, where China's really getting after us is on the economics, on technology, on innovation. Um, and I think you know making sure that we do better on that, which is contained in this bill, fifty-two billion dollars to make sure that we can make uh, computer chips here um, domestically. Um, I think I think it's a real opportunity to frame, I think when you pass legislation, if you can frame it into a broader narrative, and the broader narrative is that Democrats will help us compete economically, not just with China, but with the world, um, so that we can deal with the economic insecurity that so many people in America are facing. If we frame it that way, I think we can build forward. Now, in answer to your question of what happens next, this is sort of my world, Um, this is what we do with the defense bill. And there are subtleties and difficulties to it that so few people understand. And I wish I had more confidence that this would happen. Because, you know, the Senate, like six months ago, passed USICA. That's what they called their Competes Act. And then it just sort of sat in the House. And the Science Committee had a piece of it. And the Foreign Affairs Committee had a piece of it. No one really sort of wanted to do anything with it. And then Chuck Schumer and I got going into a back and forth on that because he wanted to add USICA to the defense bill. Nah, that's fine, um, you know, uh, but the problem is, as I pointed out to him, you don't have any agreement on it, okay? You don't have, I can't just come in and impose it, you know, the science, all these other committees, they got to do their work. Um, and that's when, you know, Nancy said, okay, we we promise you we'll deal with this and we'll go to conference. So now they're going into conference. Problem with the Senate bill, the Senate bill got really aggressive on the military side of things, the Useca Act. It was bipartisan coming out of the Senate. Um, because Schumer decided to sort of let the Republicans have a chunk of it, which I'm not judging negatively or, you know, saying he's got, I don't know, but he got it passed and our bill was straight partisan. Um, So how do we reconcile those two um, so that we can keep the Senate Republicans on board um, there's a high degree of difficulty involved in that, mm-hmm. um, is what I would say. So mm-hmm. we'll see, but I think it's less than 50-50
0: that we get to a bill we can pass. If we did, we could message it in
1: that way. It would
0: mm-hmm. be a good thing. So let's get into Q&A right now, and we'll start with the question that you know is coming, I know is coming. It comes every time we talk, and that is about why we spend as much as we do on defense. And specifically, uh, we had uh, a number of people want to know this year why the NDAA passed for more than the president asked for with Democrats in control of both chambers. Dixie, Hannah asked this. So, you know, but we know that there's more money as we talked about for HBCUs, uh, 517 a million more for PFOS cleanup, but the NDAA uh, this year was billions more, I think, than the president asked for. Aren't so. Uh, How do you respond to that?
1: Yeah, now the president sent over a budget. The numbers get a little confused depending on whether or not you include the Department of Energy. Uh, So, for the sake of this conversation, the numbers that are fresh in my mind are non Department of Energy numbers. So, the president sent over seven hundred and fifteen. We authorized and the Senate authorized seven hundred and forty. So, roughly twenty five billion more. The appropriators are at in this. Point they're trying. Speaking of difficult negotiations, they're trying to get an omnibus appropriations bill done to fund the d- discretionary portion of the budget. Defense is a huge part of that. Um, yeah. I mean, the short answer is a bunch of Democrats on the Armed Services, committed vote, Armed Services Committee voted for the twenty five hundred billion dollar increase. I did not. Uh, I voted to stick to the Biden budget, um, but it was pretty overwhelming. I want to say, like, why do you think that that happened that way? Um, Has a lot of different reasons for it. The big one I think, is there is a both a perception and a reality that we face more national security challenges now than we have in the in in, in the you know recent past, um, with Russia, with what they're doing in Ukraine, with China and how they're threatening Taiwan, with Iran, which has been really active in Yemen and now to the point where they're threatening to set off a broader war in the Middle East by lobbying missiles into the UAE and Saudi Arabia on a fairly regular basis. Um, plus Syria. Um, You know, Korea, North Korea doesn't worry me as much as it worries others. Um, But you know, they are firing off a bunch of missiles. ISIS has not gone away. And then the other big thing is the pace of innovation. The history of warfare is, you know, in large part, who came up, who, who figured out how to use the newest thing best, you know, and go all the way back to, you know, the Comanches were the Native American tribe that figured out how to use horses when they first showed up on the scene better than anybody else. Uh, and they pretty much kicked ass for about 100 years um, and control a lot of territory down in Southwest uh, U.S. and down in New Mexico. Um, and now it's AI and information systems. And the Pentagon has not been great at buying new innovative technologies. Most notably, they're not great at buying software. Um, software is kind of important. So I always joke when people come to me, well, whether it's the F-35 or the tanker or Ford, and we're like, what the hell? Why are you so far over budget? Well, it's a software problem. <laughs>
0: I'm
1: like, okay, why don't we go ahead and fix said software problem so we're not spending all of this money. So there's a lot that we need to do to update our command and control systems so that they function better, they take advantage of innovation technology. So there is a case to be made um, that to meet our defense needs, given where China and Russia and Iran and transnational terrorist groups are at, is not insignificant. Um, now, I, I am still pushing on the notion that you have got to spend the money, we give them better um, right now. So that's why I supported the 715 number. But I won't tell you that it's insane to you know, say that the Pentagon should need a $740 billion budget. Now, people have different opinions on that. I think the US should not be as engaged in the world as we are. Um, and if we chose to pull back, we then wouldn't have to spend that money. And I understand that we can have that, that broader discussion. Um, you now, one of the other arguments that is routinely made for reducing the defense budget is we have so many other needs. And I, I take that point. But in this case, that was a more difficult point to make because, in the last what now, almost two years, we've spent seven trillion dollars over and above what your typical budget would be. seven trillion dollars in special appropriations, yeah. none of which went to defense. You know, it went to try to get through the pandemic or also the infrastructure bill that we passed, which, by the way, should be part of that momentum thing. Look, here's Democrats getting things done for the country.. Right. Um so, you know, I mean that's that's the debate. Now, a core of this debate, core of the people who want to cut the defense budget, don't think that the US should be doing as much in the world as we're doing. Um, And that gets into a much more specific
0: discussion, but that's sort of how it played out. I feel at some point we should have that discussion because it seems to always be the itch that never gets scratched with with, with our, our our town halls here and at, at some point i would love to have that discussion sure. uh, with you um there were we have so many questions i'm going to try to get to as many of them as we possibly can in, in the next few minutes answer, that we have sure. uh remaining here we had a question uh michael from widby asks how section 365 will be implemented and when so it is my understanding section 365 is one of the amendments to the, this year's NDAA that would study insulating homes around military bases against jet noise. Did this amendment pass? And, and if it did, how and when will it be implemented? Honestly, I do not know. Um,
1: if I have staff on this call, uh, Sarah, if you could go ahead and make sure um, the the questioner's information, we give them this information, get that specific answer. We'll have to find out. It's something that I think is important and, you know, which I've dealt with at SeaTac Airport, not I was going to storm.
0: say, well, that, that, that's a good segue because we also had a question about noise pollution, noise and pollution uh, around the SeaTac Airport harming communities of color, and what's being done about that. And you recently wrote an op-ed in the Seattle Times about your bill, the Aviation Noise and Emissions Mitigation Act. Can you briefly tell us about that? Sure. Several big components, and the biggest one is to
1: get the FAA. To expand its idea of what its mission is um, and to expand it to include making sure that airport affected communities are protected that it's not just a matter of how many planes can you get in and out how can you ship people and cargo most efficiently and effectively but you should take into account how it impacts the communities around those airports and you should include them in the discussions of how to do it so that's number one number two is um, looking at air pollution um, what is the effect of all the particles dropping down on people and what can we do to improve, um, our air flows, you know, airflow systems to protect people in those communities and to spend the money to do it. And then same thing on noise pollution, um, as the noise is expanding, you know, do what we can to insulate homes and protect people from the noise in the air, make that part of the mission of the FAA. And frankly, of how we view air travel in a nutshell, that's what we're trying to do.
0: Holly had a question about uh, autism care demonstration. Can an amendment be added for the autism care demonstration changes to be stopped pending the outcome of the third-party analysis? I believe, um, and Holly, if you're on, you can correct me on this, that this is an inquiry about the coverage of TRICARE, which is uh, the military health care service. Do you know anything about this, Congressman?
1: I don't, um, but the short answer is yes. I mean, that's certainly, I mean, quality of life for the people who are serving is, you know, a central focus um, and healthcare and and care for the families is a huge part of this. So I'd be happy to take a look at it.
0: Uh, let's see, Adam asks, what is your plan to end this era of great power competition and create the first ever era of great uh, power cooperation to avoid World War III? It's a big question. Yeah,
1: I think, I think that's a
0: crucial, crucial point. And I'll tell you, I'm
1: I am genuinely worried right now that there are too many members of Congress that are too combative about all of this. Um, you know, we've you know, I'm not going to name names here because I'm not going to. Well, yeah, yeah. there's a member of my my um, committee, a Democrat, who wants us to sort of pre-approve an AUMF that says we'll go to war with China if they attack Taiwan um that's way too provocative in my mindset um there's also an ongoing discussion where iran is concerned with what to do about yemen and the houthis um i think we are being too aggressive and too combative in our rhetoric i personally wouldn't have boycotted the beijing olympics in any way um you know i i you I don't want to be unnecessarily provocative. So number one, we need to be less provocative in the approach that we take. Number two, we need to look for opportunities to work together. And I really think that was a, you know, a missed opportunity with Trump because he was so combative and incompetent on climate change. Um, you know, On a whole series of issues, there are things we have in common with Russia and China that I think, you know, I support a multipolar world. Even if it was possible for the US to be the dominant power in the world, I would advise against it. Um, The world is a better place when we have more cooperation and more shared power, not more concentrated power. We have a real opportunity now to confront the problems and challenges that we face in the world and to work with China, Russia, the European Union, India, Brazil, Um, I think we should look for opportunities for things that we can work together on nuclear non-proliferation, um, something that is certainly to the benefit of Russia, China, and the U S you know, also let's have arms control discussions with China and Russia. Um, let's begin to engage in those debates look for places where we can work together to create a more peaceful world instead of being obsessively focused about competition. Um, it's something that's really important to me.
0: I am I'm so tempted to go back and ask you a question about how Putin recently met with uh, uh, President Xi in order to uh, try to mitigate some of the damage of the sanctions that are most certainly coming his way should he invade Ukraine. But that we can probably say that for another day. Um, Dan asks, is there any consideration of modular nuclear and thorium reactors to improve carbon footprint in overseas and homeland bases? This is pretty controversial stuff. Where do you land on this?
1: Yes, yes, there is.
0: Um, and you know, I look, I've looked at this a thousand different ways. I don't
1: see how we deal with climate change and meet the energy needs of this planet without, well, I, sorry, with, without some nuclear. And there are newer technologies out there. And it is, there's been, there's study and research being done in the DO, DOD on these sort of micro nuclear reactors. I say the, the, the only way um, would be if, if fusion technology, actually came to be, then yes, um, we could do it without nuclear. Um, But if it doesn't, I think we need to do some research. And I think DOD needs to be part of that. And I'm not saying we start building nuclear power plants all over the world. We can't abandon the research or abandon the technology at this point if we're going to get
0: to a clean energy future. Can you tell us anything about nuclear? I mean, you do work with the Department of Energy from time to time. so, yep. uh, And I know that they're uh, directly related to, to nuclear weapons. Did, did, any, any progress that is encouraging on nuclear fusion?
1: Um, uh, Not that I'm aware of. I've read oh, several yeah. articles right. out there that say that said nuclear <laughs> fusion is like you come up with 10 problems, you solve them all, and then another 20 appear. This um, sure. is, was sort of the summary of the article. There's
0: no free problem. lunch. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, so, we'll let you go here, but I, I just want to address a couple of things. So, Summer asks, What are some of the best ways a person can help between now and election day? I want to be as effective as possible in this cycle. So, Summer represents one end of the spectrum of the people that we hear from. The other end of the spectrum are people who are terribly burned out, demoralized right now. We're hoping and we could talk about reasons why, I suppose, at another time, but they were hoping that with the razor-thin majority that we had in Congress that we were going to be able to accomplish hell a lot more. I fell into that as well. So I would just ask you maybe to close on some of the things you feel that we can do um, and, and how we can start to feel a sense of hope again and, and, and working toward what we absolutely need to do in 2022 to protect the House majority, to expand the Senate majority. This is so, so, so crucial, and I know that you know that. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Sure. I think the first step there is to, is to sort of get to that more optimistic place. Um, and, you know, I'm an optimist by nature, but certainly have had some tough things happen in my life that have challenged that. Um, but I think part of it is to sort of understand how life works. And I think, you know, the perfect being the enemy of the good is something that we tend to fall into. Um, you know, I think we have accomplished some things. I mean, to begin with, we have managed to prevent a fascist takeover of the United States of America. Um, and I don't think that's unimportant, uh, and nor was it easy You know, we got a competent president in place who's running the country um, and representing the U.S. on the global stage in a competent, effective and crucially non-corrupt manner. Um, That's really important. Um, You know, we passed those seven trillion dollars in benefits, you know, every time when I'm out in the district talking to people. And just about everyone I talk to says that those, the, the CARES package, the American Recovery Act helped them, whether it's, you know, a community-based organization that was able to stay alive because of a PPP loan or food banks that were able to continue to provide care because of the, you know, the food that was provided them. I was down at CMAR, which is a community health clinic in federal way. And they were talking to me about, you know, all, all the services that they've been able to provide to people. Because of that money that was provided, money that wouldn't have been there if Democrats hadn't won the last election.
0: So they they explicitly make that connection that the Democrats Absolutely. are the ones responsible for
1: this. Absolutely. OK, so I think part of it is, I mean, look, oh, I don't want to get overly philosophical here, but, you know, I <laughs> mean. Life sucks and then you die, right? Um, That's
0: (laughs) Good night, everybody. Bye. Have a a wonderful afternoon. But but but
1: here's the thing, okay? You know, I mean, I studied philosophy under the Jesuits at Fordham, and my father died while I was in college, and I was going through a lot of interesting thoughts about how the whole thing works. Um, There is a beauty and a joy to life in the world that we should not lose track of. Um, and part of that beauty and joy comes in some cases from the pain that is involved, um, because it shows you the whole spectrum of what human existence is. Um, and I think we need to keep that in mind that, you know, that that, that they're actually, you know, whether it's just, you know, the fact that you have grandchildren or a child or something, I don't know, you like to collect stamps and you found one, or you're a sports fan and the Kansas City Chiefs mercifully lost, um, and it makes you happy, which would be in my case. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of joyful things that happen day in and day out in life. And you have to focus on that. You have to find the joy. And the joy isn't that you're going to have a perfect life, Okay. And you know, the people next door to you and down the street, they don't have a perfect life either, despite what it may look like um, on social media. So you got to find joy in life and be optimistic about that. Um, and relatively speaking, in human history, we're still doing pretty good. I mean, I read books about the 19th century all the time. A disease came through. You know, how many, how many parents had all of their children live to adulthood in the 19th century? Okay. Not many. And it didn't matter how rich you were. Okay. So we've made a lot of progress and we should be happy about that. The other thing, and I I struggle with this because not everyone is like me, um, there is no point in being discouraged. Literally, there's no point in it. Um, I get it. I understand it. um, I get discouraged myself. um, But, you know, you may as well try. And it's more interesting than not. Okay. So, and like I said last time, I think we're on. The other thing is, while there's no point in discouraging, no point in giving up, get a try. It is also, you also have to really, and I'll say this again, you have to understand that you are not going to solve all the world's problems. You're just not. You could spend every second of every day. You can make sure you never go to sleep. You keep your eyes open. You're thinking, thinking, working, working, work, not going to happen. So it's really okay from time to time to say, I don't know what the answer is. Um, you know, I'm going to go for a walk okay? You don't have to figure it all out. Um, Stay involved, stay engaged. Now, more specifically, politically, um, we we still have a chance here. And the chance is because the Republican Party is out of touch with this country. They are, okay? And, And people know that, number one. And number two, we've done some things in the last year, big, significant things, the infrastructure bill, How many people have been promising an infrastructure bill over the course of the last 20 years? Joe Biden and the Democrats delivered. Okay. Um, You know, so there are things that are getting done and moving forward in, in a positive way. And I think the key to all this is having a realistic outlook on what we can accomplish and a realistic outlook on what you can contribute to it. You don't have to do it all, you know, do a little bit, you know, volunteer. Um, you know, if, if you, have the money, you want to send a check to one of those competitive races in you know, Arizona or Georgia or New Hampshire or Nevada, um, that's great. And then the other big thing I would say as democratic organizers, and I will close on this point, hmm. let's get the message right here at home. I had this conversation with a lot of people, um, running for various offices throughout King County last year, King County could be better governed right now. There just ain't no two ways about it. When you look at where we're at on public safety, where we haven't gotten to on meaningful police reform, when you look at homelessness, we can do better, okay? Um, And if we do better, if King County and places that are run by Democrats and progressives do better, that's the best message we can send to the country. And I know a lot of people don't believe me on this, but if you're running for a contested seat in Iowa, if Seattle and King County do a better job, that helps you. Because that's the Republican message is Democrats, you know, Democrats are, you know, lawless chaos. Um, They won't enforce the law. They won't protect people. They can't do anything right. So if we do a better job just in our basic governance here locally, that starts to send the message that progressives and Democrats, we can govern. We can get things done and we can create better, safer, more prosperous communities. And I believe this in my heart and soul. I've seen Republicans try to govern. I've seen Democrats try to govern, and I will take us every single time. So, you know, that's, you know, I think that's the message we we need to be sending out. So, what we do here locally can have a profound impact nationally. You don't have to go to Nevada or Arizona or wherever to campaign. Um, We can just be part of uh, sending the right message and building the right policies here at home.
0: And working to help uh, Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier keep her seat here at home. That's.
1: <laughs> I got distracted there. But yeah, in our state, Kim's got the toughest race hands down. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think she's a great candidate, fits her district well. Um, but you know, the 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 tide um that typically goes against the the party that's president is in power in the first off year, it's out there. So yeah, that's yeah. locally, that's the race to work on.
0: The the wind is at our faces, but we, I I, I feel very confident that that certainly I know that uh, indivisibles from all over the state are going to be converging on my home district of the 8th. So listen, I I just, I really appreciate you taking the extra time today, sir. This has just been a tremendous conversation. Thank you as always.
1: Thank you. It's always great to see you, Steve. I appreciate the job you do. And uh, thanks, Kat. Good to see you all.
0: And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the Town Hall Series is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video of this or any of our podcasts, head to facebook.com slash podcast. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll see you next time. Bye.